Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our Hosanna, I pray that you would break our hearts for what breaks yours. I pray that everything we are would be for your kingdom. It is the only thing that truly matters because it is the only thing that is eternal. So I pray that where there are people that are hurting, we would be there. I pray that where there are people who are lonely, we'd be there. I pray that where there are people that need inviting to a party or to a church or to a dinner or to a lunch, we'd be there. I pray you'd fill us this week, not only in services, but by your spirit and our quiet time. I pray that we do quiet time in our groups, with our families. I pray that you would be Hosanna in our lives. And that then we would want to follow you, Hosanna, and start being where you are, being around who you're around, and loving as you love to raise your kingdom, because that's what you've called your church us to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you all. Y'all can be seated. Thank Joseph for reading the scripture again. It was scripture of Palm Sunday. We're going to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday. We're going to do some more stuff too. And uh, I want to start by, uh, just been in prayer, but uh, tell you what, y'all indulge me. Just close your eyes if you would. Close your eyes. So uh, there's the old classic saying, you know, Every head bowed, every eye closed. I'm not going to use that, although I just did. Anyway, just close your eyes and um, indulge me. I'll close my eyes too. And I want you to think about in a moment, in a moment, your dream church. I want you to see it. What does that church look like? The people who attend it, the people who are coming in and out on, on Sunday mornings or other services or groups or or maybe Sunday school, maybe you're a Sunday school dude or girl. What does that dream church look like? Is it what I would call a churchy church? Churchy church is like, it looks traditionally like we think a church to look like. Maybe they've got some pews, maybe they've got a steeple, maybe everybody's dressed real nice, suits. Maybe they have Sunday school, maybe they don't, but maybe just the look and the feel is churchy as we know it. Or is it kind of the opposite, what I'd call a challenge church? Challenge, like kind of everything about it is a challenge. Like it may be a challenge to get there. It may not be in a great part of town. Uh, It may be a challenge to look at. Like maybe it's not a beautiful structure. Maybe it's just a building. Maybe it's challenging to be around the people that are there. That normally in Monday through Saturday life, you wouldn't get along with them. Maybe it's challenging you by God's word and, and the teaching like, like pushes you. And, and it, it doesn't convict you, but it challenges you. Because if you're convicted, you're responding. Or maybe it's challenging you to go. And maybe that's not like globally. Maybe that's like, you know, to people that are not in your circle of friends or supper club or whatever. It's just, that church, it just challenges you. And then there's another church. And it's just Christ church. It's just Jesus Christ church. And maybe people come in suits and maybe they come in sandals. Maybe there is a steeple or maybe it's just a building. Maybe they have Sunday school. Maybe they have groups. Maybe they don't have anything except just community gatherings. What does Jesus church look like to you? Is it your dream church? Or do we need to reconcile those two? Okay, you can open your eyes if you close your eyes. 
And um, I've thought about that a lot lately, my dream church. Uh, the reason I've thought about it a lot is because um, we're entering a different season in our lives as a church, and so we're about to get property and be at a building and, um, and you know, have a lot more ownership, literally and in every way, of a, of a church building. And so we're, we're moving into a different season in this church's life. And I love that, uh, love that word, season. Um, some of y'all know uh, I love a few TV shows. And I love watching a TV show, like, from, from beginning, you know, to, to its end. As in, like, you know, the, the pilot episode to the last episode. And if a TV show's good, you know, lasts a couple years, four, five, six years. Y'all know I loved Lost. I used to use, you know, a Lost story like every other sermon. And, you know, there was a kind of a down period in my TV watching like after Lost. And now I've picked up on something that, that seemingly would be random opposite, you know, Downton Abbey. Love some Downton Abbey. I don't know what that makes y'all think of me, but good stuff. And I was talking to Theodore here. He, he's into Walking Dead. I was like, man, I can't, I can't do zombies, but... Uh, Pierce, you are too? So I'm done walking dead. But I love a series. And what I love about a series is like you see the character arcs. And you see some people come in to a TV series and they might leave. Or they might stay the duration. But it just shows, you know, the life of a people and characters. And really a great TV series. Like you just get to know the characters. And so I think about Bellwether in a way like a TV series. Not that, you know, I know you're like, man, that's cheddar. Well, I just think sometimes I get cheddary. Okay? And I like the TV series. And like who knows, you know, God willing, it's going to go on to eternity when we meet them. But just the characters, and I love seeing some of you, and y'all are some characters. And I love seeing y'all develop and grow and sometimes have setbacks and overcome. So anyway, we've had different seasons. We had, you know, the, the start season, the house season, had the courthouse season. We're coming to the end of the JA season, or, you know, if that's what you want to call it, or the PAC season. And we are entering a new season, and it's a new place. And... I think it's very important for us to ask, who are we going to be as a church? Do we need to reconcile some of your ideas of a dream church with Jesus' church? Do we? I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Who are we going to be as a church? I'm going to be asking that on and off over the next couple months. Because it is vital for us to ask, vital for us to think about, pray about, and to be Jesus' church, however that looks like. But what does it look like? I think we see what it looks like when we look into God's word. God's word, if we look closely and we follow it, it'll show us who we're to be as a church. It'll show us who we're to be for our lives. I talk about the Bible, and it's, sometimes it's like a mirror, literally. Like you read it, and you will see your reflection. You'll see that that's me. That, that's who I am, or that's where I am right now. And it's like a mirror. Sometimes it's like a window. Like we look through it, and we can see who we are meant to be or who our families are meant to be or our marriages or our churches are meant to be. So it can be like a mirror and it can be like a window for our lives, for our families, for our church. And the passage that Joseph read today, it speaks a lot about us as individuals, as followers of Christ, and it speaks a lot about Jesus' church or what that should look like. And really it goes through Three different episodes, some that happened on Palm Sunday and then the next day. And I could easily call these the donkey, the temple, and the tree. Something happens to a donkey, a temple, and a tree that tie into Jesus. So let's see. First off, it's, uh, 
it's kind of easy, and the most thing that we kind of know about Palm Sunday, with the exception of the palm branches, verses 7 through 10, what Joseph read, Jesus rides a donkey. And I think it's easy to forget over and over again, Jesus chose willingly a donkey. I mean, Jesus is God. He's Lord. He could have gone with a thoroughbred. And it's not like everybody rode colts and donkeys into town. I mean, Roman soldiers, at a minimum, would have the finest horses, the thoroughbreds. At a maximum, if they came back from battle, they'd be coming through on a chariot. And here's Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Hosanna that we sang about, and he takes this donkey, this mule, this thing that would be embarrassing for us, any, if you're honest, it'd be embarrassing for me to like be riding a donkey. A donkey. And yet the people are worshiping him. A couple days later, they'll kill him. But at this point, they're worshiping him. And he chooses to come in as a humble servant. Humility. I preached on it last week. And it keeps coming up over and over again when you look at the life of Jesus. Contrary to pride. Contrary to self-promotion. Contrary to our world. Contrary to being all about me. Or all about our church. He's a humble servant. And so I just throw this out, you know, asking y'all in terms of who you want to be as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, as a church, are we humble servants? Make it easier. Some of the greatest Christian leaders in, in all of history were tremendous humble servants. Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, who ministered in, uh, in literally like a hell on earth, Calcutta. Um, or so James tells us. We're going to go there in November, if y'all want to go. Calcutta ministered to people who they only came if they were not going to live. So they were dead. They were going to be, they're going to be dying. A humble servant. Billy Graham. You're like, Billy Graham? I, I mean, I don't normally think of Billy Graham as like humble servant. You know, I think of, you know, just great suit, tie, you know, proclaiming, you know, preaching to tens of thousands, millions over the course of life. You know what's interesting about Billy Graham? Billy Graham spent his entire life, he could have lived anywhere, could have made, you know, so much money. Early in his ministry, he turned down a $1 million check. Some big supporter said, I believe in you, in your ministry. Here's a million bucks. He said, no. He said, if I take that, I can't rely on God. I got to rely on God. But he's lived essentially in like a log cabin up in the, uh, in the mountains of North Carolina. All his life, just a very simple home. Humble servant. Even, and these are our brothers and sisters, and we love them, although we're not of that um, slice or that state, call you, uh, the Catholics and the new Pope. Um, and the things that he's done and his humble servant attitude. And he said some things like, man, I'd, I'd say that in a sermon. I don't know, that may be bad for y'all. But, I mean, his, his aspects of humility and, and servanthood. People who are willing to say, I'll, I'll get on the donkey. I'll embarrass myself. I'll, you know, it's not about the thoroughbred. And that was Jesus. The humble servant. Something else that convicts me in this passage is, then Jesus goes to the temple. And uh, Jesus gets, not a little, a lot angry. Actually, a lesson on anger, and I don't know if you picked this up, but verse 11, it says, He entered Jerusalem, and straight, you know, going through the streets, palms laying down on the donkey, first thing he does, goes to the temple. It says, when he looked around, it was already late, he went to Bethany. I guess he went to sleep. What it's saying is, 
A couple verses later, he's cleaning house. But he had already gone to the temple, and I don't think, like, things had drastically changed overnight. So he saw it was going down, and what did he do? He slept on his anger. Kind of just some, just some practical advice. Those of us who can get angry, uh, maybe, you know, like, at our better halves, or maybe at a friend, or maybe, you know, sleep on it, okay? Do like Jesus, verse 11, Mark 11, 11, go to bed, and then, well, then Jesus raises Cain. But I'm not saying raise Cain, but I'm saying... That's kind of a lesson in anger. But go back to the temple, and he, he does raise Cain. He literally overturns the temple. He is angry. What is he angry about? Well, it's easy to use this passage and talk about, well, you know, they were doing business and commerce there in the temple. And it's easy to preach on, and I've preached on this passage before, like, you know, you know, are you here to do business? A lot of people are. Not just Bellwether, all churches. Are you here for your relationships? Are you here for your status? A lot of people are, not just Bellwether, all other churches. It's kind of like the way the world works in the Bible Belt. I mean, it's... it's I've thought about it, man, I've wrestled with that. It's not like I dig it or anything, but, you know, I've seen it happen in church after church after church, the business deals and everything. So a lot of times this verse, this passage is preached on, you know, house of prayer, business elsewhere, all of that. We can go a little deeper, though, because some bad stuff was going down in this temple. It's not at all God's house, okay? Some of the bad stuff was that they actually... And I didn't know this until I was reading about it this week. They actually did an exchange rate. They, they charged a temple tax if you wanted to give money to the temple. Now, to translate that, if you want to give your tithe, as we do the tithe with communion, there would be somebody down here and was like, okay, well, you've got to get an exchange. So you exchange your money for our temple church rate, and we charge a very high rate, and we make money off you as you give to the temple. That's what these cats were doing. Another thing they were doing, it says they sell doves, okay, the only people who bought doves were like people who couldn't afford cattle. So the poor people. And they were charging a lot of money for doves. So they were breaking the backs of the poor. And it's kind of like if you... Um, so just, just for the record, I'm about to talk bad about Ole Miss. Okay? Okay, I love Ole Miss. You know, so moment at Bell where they're talking bad about Ole Miss. But like go to the Chevron down the street and I'll buy a Coke or Diet Coke for a buck fifty. Go to Vault Hemingway. Okay? I, you heard it, JC's talking bad about it. It's like seven bucks, you know, and that may be a, that may be a cheapie. But it's kind of like the same thing, you know. You go to different places and you're like, man, I can get this. Well, think about that times like 50 here. And they're charged a lot more money for things that aren't worth anything and the poor are being cheated. And then above all, key verse is verse 17 Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, that they were excluding people. Like they were not letting non-Jewish folks come in to meet with God to pray. And that's not what Jesus is about. Jesus, everybody come in. However you look, whatever you do, Jesus for the other, John 10, 16. So to be Jesus' church, what could we learn from that? And I've been thinking about that passage and also been thinking about a move to what is now North Park and thinking about what does that, how does that speak to me and how should that speak to us about how to be Jesus' church. Well, one thing is the money, okay? One thing is they are getting money any way they can to glorify their building, their temple structure. You get what I'm saying? So now we're moving into this building and we're already talking about what renovations we're going to make. We're already talking about what changes we're going to do. We're already talking about... You know, what are we going to build there? We even started thinking about a long-range plan from five to ten years. It's exciting stuff. 
But I've seen churches, and I'm sure y'all have seen churches, that go so far down this road that it's all about the upkeep of the building. It's all about getting new buildings and new structures and decking it out, prettying it up, all of that good stuff, and forget about what we would traditionally call mission, mission and ministry. I believe God's blessed this church with resources and with people because missions has been at the forefront of it since day one. Globally, local, people's hearts in mission. That needs to grow. I'm going to just, I'm always going to be pushing y'all on mission, whether it's going to Honduras, whether it's going to your neighbor, literally your neighbor that, you know, you don't know. We got to push one another in mission for the kingdom. And so, like, how does that look, like, financially broken down? Like, how much we should spend? I mean, it's good to kind of generally vague ideas, but, you know, a goal that I've always tried to, like, push us toward financially. We're not there yet. But this is going to be the challenge with this building, is if we could get to a place where it's a third, a third, a third. A third goes to building and upkeep. A third goes to growing our staff. A third goes to mission and ministry. And don't just get all the way out here and like, you know, what do we got to add? We've got to keep the missions and the giving focus. And it not just be about, hey, look at our, look at our throne. Look at our new temple. Another thing that this speaks to me to is the exclusion aspect and, and I've said this before, some of y'all might not have been here that Sunday, but someone who was part of North Park, and I'm sure that they wouldn't be like crazy me quoting this, but man, I need to. We, we need to be ready for this. It's like, you know, it's not like, hey, this church has said, hey, you know, I think it'd be great if we just sold our church. You know, we, we don't need it anymore, don't want it here. I mean, that's not how it is at all. I mean, there's a sadness. And that's why I say, man, we need to pray for them. I mean, they're dispersing, Okay. They're dispersing. But somebody said, you know, the reason we're dispersing and the way it is is, is two, big, two big things. We did not reach out to this community. And when we realized we had to, it was too late. And then second, there was an unwillingness to raise young leaders in the church. And so there's a power vacuum. And people wanted to keep power. That's, that's not God's house it's not who we can be. It's very easy to fall into that and be our temple and be challenged by the surrounding community and not go to the other and not invite to the party or to Sunday morning or to the group. And then we, man, we got to, and then it may be too late. Not raise up young leaders. And that's our mission statement, but are we living into it? So I'm asking myself these questions, and I want you to ask yourself these questions. Are we doing this? We got to grease the tracks to get ready there. And then... You know, then we come to the tree. And this is like, this is crazy. Jesus said, nobody's going to eat from you anymore, tree. Bad tree. I can't get fruit off. I mean, that's like, what is going on here? It's just kind of schizo, honestly. And he has the tree, and then he goes to the temple, and then somebody asks him about the tree, and he says all this stuff about, you know, he doesn't even answer about the tree. I mean, it's a challenging passage. There is, uh, and actually Tim Keller writes about this tree in his book, King's Cross. And so there are trees in the Middle East that, uh, it's kind of like they'll trick you. They'll be fruit trees, but they won't bear fruit in the springtime. They'll grow and look pretty with their leaves, but there will be no fruit. And one thing, and here's some, some like Bible scholar knowledge for y'all, not that you may want it, but here it is. The one way Mark and the gospel writers wrote 
is that they would sandwich things, you know, like a sandwich. And what's most important in a sandwich is what's in the middle. And so what Mark was doing is he's sandwiching the temple into these couple of passages about the trees. And the tree is shining light on the temple, if you get that. What he's saying is, you're all dressed up, tree. And there's no fruit. As in, like, you're all dressed up and you got nothing to show for it. So, be gone. Does that resonate? Maybe about a church? Maybe about our lives? All dressed up and no fruit? So Jesus is saying, you know, that's great that you, you look good and you're prettied up, but Jesus is about fruit. Jesus is about the real deal. He's not about fake church or fake religion. He's about humility. So then come to the question, okay, if that's what Jesus is all about, what's Jesus' church look like? Except I, mean, I threw out churchy church, I threw out challenge church, it could be any church. But then Jesus' church, Christ's church, what does that look like? And I believe Jesus answers us that question in verse 22 through 25. Because they ask him about the tree. They say, why are you doing this, this tree? What's the deal with the tree? And then Jesus comes out of nowhere and he says, verse 22, it says, Jesus answers them. Doesn't even talk about the tree. All he says is, have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, if you do not doubt in your heart, but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done. So I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you have received it. It will be yours. Then he says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so your Father in heaven will forgive you. Jesus' church. He gives three building blocks right there. Faith, prayer, forgiveness. Very simple. Who knows how to look? Who knows how to dress up? Could be like challenge or it could be churchy. But if you don't have faith, we don't have prayer, we don't have forgiveness, true, we will not be Jesus' church. No church without those will be Jesus' church. Faith, first thing. Do you have real faith? Like, yeah, I got it. No, I mean, do we have real faith? Do we believe mountains can be moved? I'll give you an example. A year ago, Easter. Easter 2012. I stood before our congregation. God had been convicting me for months. We've been talking about it in staff. We were like, it's time. We'll say, by the end of 14, we will be in a permanent home. Some people told me, not then, like in the last month, they're like, you said that? I thought you were nuts. I mean, seriously. They were like, I thought there was no way. Not where we are as a church, not in our life. I mean, that's great, and maybe down in the distance, but that was like, I heard it, like, great, fire up the Easter crowd. Where are we now? Not only where are we now, but, like, what has been, been like, literally handed to us, and good deal, good property, all of that, and we can be excited. I hope you're excited. I'm excited. But it takes, and God had convicted me of this. He's like, Johnny... Before anything has to happen, you have to step out in faith. And you've got to believe big things. Some of our, our brothers and sisters here like saying audacious faith. You've got to be audacious. So my, my question, my challenge for us as a church, what's our audacious faith for Easter of 13? What is it? And do you really believe it? God, I was on my knees in prayer this morning thinking about this. What, what is it going to be? And one thing God says, like 500 people. 500 people by the end of 2014. And some of you are probably thinking right now, no way. 
And somebody thought a year ago, no way, property or good property. But is it audacious? Look, I'm all about calculated risk. I'm not about running off the cliff. That's a calculated risk. But it's kind of like if you, 500 people that comes through our doors by the end of uh, 2014. And if, if you resist that, then I think there are three issues that you may need to get on your knees and pray about or in your quiet time, in your closed time. One is if you, if you resist that or if you think that can't happen, then maybe there's an issue with God and that you think, well, God can't do that. And that's not what this word says. Number one. Number two, maybe you think, no, our church can't do that. Well, then maybe you have issues in the church that we need to talk about and address. Or number three, and worst of all, and I've seen this in every church that I've ever been a part of, and every church has this, you don't want to get there. Maybe you like it small. Maybe you like your club. Or maybe you can have a fence, like, I don't want this place to go anywhere. It, it happens in every church, always at least 5 to 10%. Any of those three, I pray, you would pray on your knees and have audacious faith. If God's called you here, if you're busy, man, we'd love for you to be part of it. We need to have audacious faith. We need to believe in the bigness of God first and what he would do. And it's not about numbers, but it is about numbers. It's about numbers because numbers are people. But it's also about numbers because there are always other people that need saved and need to be reached and need to be discipled and need to go. And we did have that in our DNA. It was in our DNA when it started. We've never lost it, but it ebbs and flows. Get it back. Sorry, kind of passionate there. Excuse me, I don't mean to apologize. Faith. Prayer. Do you pray fervently? Do you pray fervently for one another? Do you pray fervently for people you don't like here? People you wouldn't get along with or do business with. Do you pray for your church? Do you pray 500 or 1,000 or just that people would be reached? Do you pray for your pastor? Do you pray for your staff? Do you pray against forces of darkness that seek to destroy and kill? Do you pray? If we're not rooted in prayer and believe in prayer and have faith in our prayer, it's just a show. It's just a come and see kind of, let's just play the game. We're not here to play the game. Do you forgive? That may be hardest of all. Are you willing to forgive? You may not have had the moment yet. Maybe someone who's offended you or someone who you've offended or, you know, something has happened. And maybe there's not that moment there. Are you willing to forgive when the moment happens? In the church, outside the church, are you willing I say, man, God, this is the hardest thing I've ever done, but I've got to get to a place of peace and I'll forgive. Are you willing? Unforgiveness is rotten fruit. You say, unforgiveness is rotten fruit. It's not bearing fruit. The kingdom way, raising the kingdom, is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of the world and the way this world runs. So how do we get to it? I mean, great, you know, great things, faith, prayer, forgiveness to do. How do we do that? How do we get there? I believe one passage in John, and I'm going to close with this passage. I'm going to close with the passage and tell a story. Gets us there. It's John 12, verse 24 through 28. I'm going to break it down to a couple of verses. It should be on the screen. There it is. Actually, verse 24 and 26, John 12. 
Jesus says, very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Jesus says, if you want to bear fruit, you got to die to self. And I've said that, I'm a broken record on that one, because if you whittle down the gospel, that's one of the, the base the base foundational bad English there. That, that, is the, that is it. Die to self. We're going to sing, I surrender all. Die to self. And the thing that sometimes I can't just wrap my mind around is I see so many people struggling, and I see so many people hurting, and I see so many people trying to play the game, and it's very simple to surrender all and to die to self, and they resist so much. And I've seen the fruit that can happen when you die to self, and so, like, it boggles my mind why you wouldn't, but the devil is real, the devil is powerful, and he wants to destroy you, and he wants to hold you back from dying to self. But Jesus clear, die to self. And what does that look like? Then he gives us, he gives us very practical advice. Whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be. Where has Jesus been? Jesus was on the donkey, not the thoroughbred. Jesus despises fake religion. And anything, the fakeness of religion comes up. Jesus doesn't like just dressing up and nowhere to go or nothing to show for it. He wants fruit. Where is Jesus? Jesus is in the center of faith and prayer and forgiveness. Okay, so, so how do we still die to self? You've got to realize something. You've got to realize the same thing Jesus realized before he went to the cross. Look at this powerful passage, 27 and 28. This convicted me this week. How do you do it? Jesus was scared. I know we can go to Garden Gethsemane. We talked about the sword. Jesus, you know, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was scared. It says, verse 27, way before, days before the last supper, he says, my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason I've come to this hour. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus was scared. Jesus was petrified of what was going to go down on the cross. Jesus was going to die to self. He didn't want to. We're scared too. How do we do it? We realize the glory of the cross. We realize the glory of the glory of eternity. We realize what God has in store for those who love him that we can't comprehend. We realize the glory that awaits. Y'all don't want to be serious. I've seen so many people come into this church. I've seen so many people come to other churches. I've seen people leave other churches. I've seen people leave this church. And I've seen people who've gotten close. They've gotten close to the cross. And the cross is death. And ultimately the cross is death itself. And they get close and they freak out. Or they bail. Or like, I, I can't go there. And see, the thing about Christianity is, sometimes the thing that makes it the most, even, even gruesome, is the thing that is the most glorious. I mean, death on a cross. It was, it was not a good way to go. And it's where God began to show his glory. Death of ourselves, we don't want it. But we come out the other side and it, it's glory now and it's glory in the future and it's glory forever. Last thing I'd say, interesting to note, Jesus came into Jerusalem Palm Sunday. He came from Jericho. If you've been to the Holy Lands, 
and some of us are hoping to go in 2014 as well. That's something we can talk about. The road from Jericho, where Jesus came from, to Jerusalem is constantly uphill. Constantly uphill. So Jesus was going up his own mountain. Those of you who climb mountains, you know it's harder going up than coming down. And the things that Jesus calls us to are a climb. It's going up the mountain. It can be a struggle dying to self. But if we don't climb, we won't see the glory. And the glory's there on the mountaintop. And the glory awaits us. And it is really glorious. And we can really get there. And so I ask you, do you want to see glory? I'm willing to climb with you. I'm ready to go. Bellwethers continuing to climb. We will not go down. We will be at the mountaintop. We will see glory because that's what awaits us. But it's still going up. Jesus did it. I hope you know what glory awaits if you follow him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your glory that awaits us. Some people here have that glory. Some don't. Probably many don't. Many are resistant. Many have come close to the cross. They pull back. They backed away. Dear Jesus, I pray over these folks and I pray for this church that you call Bellwether. We would keep climbing the mountain that we would have faith, that we'd have prayer, that we'd have true forgiveness, that Jesus is in the center. And when it's hard, let us realize we're going up the mountain. It's not meant to be easy, but glory awaits and we're not alone. We have Jesus. We have our church family. Thank you for that, dear Lord. I pray over this week we would see and feel the mountain you climbed for us and the glory you've created. And we'll just go with you. Just go and trust and surrender. In your name, amen.